Well, I want to talk to you a little bit about... Uh, at least I thought I wanted to talk to you. Dylan doesn't want me to talk to you, but no, it's all right. Don't worry about it. We're having fun. Hey, you know what I love? This is awesome. I have people on the front row. So if we were Presbyterian, chance we'd be getting baptized again, you know? So you're in the spray zone, buddy. And so uh, I love it. We need to pass out the, the Shamu, uh, you know, uh, little things to cover up the front row. I want to talk to you about something really practical. When we talk about how do we understand, um, how, do we, how do we carry our relationship with the Lord with us on a practical basis day to day. And there is nothing more important than understanding the concept of how God guides. I want to start off with this story. Have you ever traveled with somebody because it's completely possible that you have become over-dependent upon technology? How, how many of you are willing to admit, because you can't lie in church, that the very first thing that you do when you wake up in the morning is you look at your phone? Okay? Facebook, play a game, you know, update your status awake and not happy about it, whatever, you know. Have you ever traveled with someone who they thought the world was coming to an end because their phone navigation system stopped working? Oh my goodness, you're still in Rock Hill, all right? It's not that hard. I know if you're traveling with a guy, he's not going to pull over and ask for directions, but we have become so dependent upon stuff that we've we've lost. If Siri isn't telling us which way to go, we've lost the opportunity to navigate by compass. Nobody knows how to find their way around anymore. And so it doesn't matter whether you have a Garmin or a Magellan or a TomTom or an Android or an iPhone. It seems like the more help we have, you, you just do something even just a little bit to that help and we're more lost than we've ever been. We don't even know how to find our way anymore. And I think sometimes we feel that way as Christians. We know that God has promised to guide us and we want that guidance but we just feel like it's not there. So we hear verses like Psalm 31.3. You are my rock and my fortress. You lead me and you guide me because of your great name. And we go, exactly, that's what we want. God's awesome. We need his guidance in everyday life. We just don't know how to find it. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways. That's, that's the difficulty. Uh, All of us are good at acknowledging him in parts of our ways. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and he will direct you on the right paths. So we have this radical, incredible, precious promise that God will guide us, and yet we feel like we're sitting on the side of the road with a messed up GPS. We're not hearing from him on what we're supposed to do. And listen, here's the truth. You can't get through life without making decisions, okay? Some of you probably should have made some different decisions just based upon what you're wearing today, because that does not go with that top, does not go with that bottom. You know, um, some of you, maybe your wives dress you, good job. You, you, you look a lot better than you would have if you dressed yourself. You can't avoid making decisions. Anybody eat breakfast this morning? That's a decision. Anybody get dressed this morning? Anybody bathe this morning? If you're sitting next to a visitor, please raise your hand. Um, <laughs> you had to make decisions. How many of you had more than one route that you could choose to go to church this morning? You stop to think about all the decisions that you've got to make, and it becomes a little bit paralyzing. We want God's guidance. So how do we find heavenly wisdom for all of the little bitty daily decisions that we have to make? I want to assert to you in no uncertain terms that understanding God's will is a lot simpler than the complex gobbledygook that we've turned it into. God's will is really pretty simple. And we're going to outline five ways as part of a mini two-part series this week and next week on understanding God's guidance 
that I think is very helpful. And the first one, the first, I don't know. You're, if you ask me to pick which of these five points are my favorite, I, I don't know. It's like asking which one of your kids you like the most. Um, but the first point is really foundational, and it's this, that God sovereignly uses everything to guide us behind the scenes. Everything about that sentence is important. God sovereignly, he's in charge, he's the creator, he knows the beginning from the end, he knows revealed stuff, he knows secret stuff. God sovereignly uses everything. What's outside of the scope of everything? Nothing. So you're telling me that God uses bad things to guide us? How do you answer that? Everything. Here's what's crazy, all right? <clears throat> this is not political, this is theological. No matter which side of the aisle, which, whatever, whatever side of the aisle you live on, we believe that God establishes who rules. That doesn't mean he likes everything that they do. So if you have a candidate that lines up with your preferences, we believe that God installed him. It doesn't mean that God's responsible for every decision that he makes. But if there's a president that you don't like, we believe that God's in charge. Here's what's really crazy, is the, the Jews in the Old Testament were the covenant people of God, and yet God says he calls Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus, two pagan kings who conquer Israel, his shepherd to punish them for their disobedience. God uses pagans all the time. That, that should give you hope. If he can use a pagan, he can use you. Um, we'll talk about that here in a little bit more. God uses a pagan who does not recognize him to accomplish his purposes. Cyrus restores them back to the Holy Land. Nebuchadnezzar takes Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all of his people away, and that is God accomplishing his will. He, every, everything is ultimately in his hands. In our first service, our choir sang a song talking about how um, everything, God is perfect in all of his ways. He's perfect in his knowledge. He's perfect in his control. Not from our perspective, because man, doesn't it seem like sometimes life is out of control? Anybody have one of those moments this week? You're like, wow, God, I know you're in charge, but um, that's faith. Faith means believing contrary to the visual evidence. It looks like it's out of control, but I believe God is still in control. One of the sweetest testimonies you will ever hear is when you see someone who has been through difficulty, and like from a human perspective, you go, there, there ain't nothing good in that. And yet they will talk about how God, as a shepherd, has sweetly nourished them and sustained them through this terrible thing, and how while we think they are forsaken, they have not felt it for one second. God has been with them. It's a wonderful thing. Listen to these verses, Proverbs 20, 24. And this is not said as a statement of despair. It's said as a statement of wonder. And I think sometimes we read in our own moods into the scriptures. Proverbs 20, 24 says, A man's steps are determined by the Lord, so how can anyone understand his own way? Do you understand what motivates you? No, not a clue. I love to tell people uh, when they get, get married, the fights that you will have in marriage will be over the dumbest and most insignificant things. Like, I'm just here to tell you, there is a right way to squeeze the toothpaste. And it is not in the middle. You've got to roll it up. We've got to be good stewards. There's a biblical principle here. So you've got to roll from the bottom. You've got to get airtight. You've got to get every bit of toothpaste out of that. God's people said? Amen. I know all you OCD types now. You just outed yourself. There's a right way. If you ever go to a hotel, the toilet paper comes over the roll, not under the roll. It's like a waterfall, not a, not a you know. I mean, it's just, why do I think that? Because that's what my family did. 
And you know why Marcy thinks differently? Because that's what her family did. We are conditioned to think about things. We don't even think about it. It's completely subconscious. There are foods you will not eat because at some point at three years old, you convince yourself that you don't like it. You have no taste bud recall of what it actually tastes like, but you're not going to eat it because at three years old, you sovereignly determine, I don't like grits. Here's the thing, man. Is like you, you will understand how our families and our own preferences prejudice us against stuff, and yet we're unwilling to say that God determines our footsteps. There are all kinds of things that determine your footsteps. Like tonight, if you know anything about football, you might be pulling for the Atlanta Falcons or anyone who happens to be playing the New England Patriots. I mean, you have preferences about this stuff. There are things that color who you are, and the Bible's just saying beyond your family of origin, beyond your own tastes and preferences. God determines your footsteps. And you know what? That's not a bad thing. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. He's in charge. And if God's not in charge, if he's not directing, then take your Bible. And I guess you can't do this if you've got a smartphone. But flip to that very last book and then just rip it all out. Because if he's not in charge, then we have no certainty that he wins. If he's not in charge... There's something he doesn't know. Well, maybe there's something out there that he doesn't know that beats him in the end. If he's not all powerful, maybe there's something out there that's more powerful than him. God is sovereign in control of all things. And it's not just men, like everyday, just Joe Schmo. Proverbs 21.1 says, A king's heart is a water channel in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. So you pick your world leader, you know. Angela Merkel, Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump, um, can steer him where he wants. And we don't understand. We get so caught up with the evening news. Oh, God's in charge. God's in charge. And it doesn't mean that we don't need to be involved in the process. We become pacifistic. Oh, okay, sera, sera, what, be, what will be, will be. No, we're engaged in the process. We want righteousness to prevail. But God's in charge. Even kings and leaders. Joe Schmo, he directs his steps. Leaders of the world, he can steer their heart exactly where he wants it to go. The, the trouble is when they steer it in a way that's contrary to what God's word wants, we, we go, all right, God, I know you're in charge. I'm just struggling to know how can this be happening. And sometimes bad things happen as a judgment upon his people not speaking up. One of the most difficult verses, uh, but one that we believe is important for us to affirm Christian orthodoxy, Isaiah 45, verses 5 through 7. Underline it in your Bible. I mean, you need to come back to this because this, mm, this is a humdinger. This, this will make you think. It's hard to understand, but being difficult doesn't mean that it's not true. It just means that it's difficult. Isaiah 45, 7 says, I am the Lord, there is no other. And to that we all say, amen. We, we affirm that. We like this verse. There is no other God but me. Yes, we, we agree. We affirm it. I will strengthen you though you do not know me. What are you talking about, Willis? He's going to strengthen people that don't know him? Yes, the Bible says that he causes his reign to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. There are people who will never acknowledge God, who want to shake their fist in his face, and despite their objections, God still blesses them. Sometimes that even happens to disobedient Christians who don't deserve God's blessings because you've rebelled, yet God in his kindness lavishes his love upon you. This God says, even the people who don't know me, I'm going to strengthen them so that all may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is no one but me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and I form darkness. Well, obviously, that's Genesis 1, 1 and 2. 
I make success and I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. What's he saying? He's in charge of everything. We don't understand how when a tsunami comes through Bondaachi, that while God didn't cause it, he allowed it. I mean, the Bible says that the world is gone mad in rebellion and that the entire world is under God's judgment. That's why natural disasters happen. It's not because God's going, hey, you know, let's, let's see if we can flood 300,000 people today. No, it's a result of fall. It's a result of sin. There are natural consequences to our disobedience. If you have a kid that is just blatantly disrespectful to you as a parent, um, you will always love your kid, but the nature of that relationship might not be a really good one. Not because of you, but because they're not willing to receive it. And in the same way, our rebellion against God has brought natural consequences. But here's the thing that's good. When we understand that everything is under his sovereign control, it means that there is nothing too small that God can't use to guide you. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that the very number of hairs on your head, he knows. He knows. He tells Abraham that um, he wants to make his progeny like the sands of the seashore. That's mind-boggling to think about. Nothing too small to escape God's meticulous providence. There's nothing too evil that God can use. If the crucifixion is part of God's plan, there is nothing too evil that God can't use it. He used the death, the murder of his son to accomplish his good purpose. And you think, you know, your fender bender this week is outside of God's plan? He can use the murder of his own son to accomplish his purpose. There's nothing too difficult that God can't guide you through. Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a kid. No way, man. She's really old, and I'm old too. They got a kid. They got a kid. And when we talk about this first point, we're not talking about a very personal kind of guidance. We're talking about what God does behind the scenes. And so for non-believers and believers just alike, when you're in the moment, you don't necessarily understand that God is guiding. But you get maybe a few days or weeks or more likely months and years away from the circumstance and you look back and what do you understand? That God has been guiding you behind the scenes in all kinds of ways that you have not been conscious of. You've seen that, haven't you? It's amazing to think about. It's not personal. We're not really involved. It's circumstantial. It's the laws of physics. It's the laws of gravity. It's the laws of the world. It's world in rebellion, natural consequences. But even through that, God is sovereignly directing and guiding and God can use everything, despite our intelligence, to to guide us. Number two, it becomes really clear when we talk about guidance that God can speak in a variety of ways and guide us with our conscious cooperation. There are ways in which God can speak to us, and if we're willing to listen, we will be going, do-do-do-do, we think that this way is good, and then God speaks to us, and we go, ooh, this way is not as good as I thought it is. I need to do this, or do this. I need to repent. I need to turn around. And so there's all kinds of ways that God can speak. There's all, a whole variety of ways that personally God interacts with us to change our direction. The Bible's filled with this. I mean, think about the ways that God has spoken to his people. Moses was tending a bunch of sheep in a burning bush. God spoke to him out of a burning bush. Now, like, if you have a friend that you meet at work, talks about, you know, he was doing some yard work this weekend, and um, his bush started talking to him. I've had some bushes that I have talked to that I don't want in my yard that have thorns and thistles and things of that sort. I've never had a bush talk to me. He doesn't necessarily speak verbally through the staff that Moses has, but you know what that staff, it's, it's, it's the coolest trick in the Bible. He's got a staff that, like, turns into a snake. 
Like, I would have tons of fun with that in my house. Um, that would be incredibly awesome. And so he, he is speaking through that action to Pharaoh to demonstrate his sovereignty. And Pharaoh goes, I'm not impressed. Watch what my magicians can do. And they throw their stick down. It turns into a snake too. But then God, to not be outdone, has Moses' snake eat up all their snakes, and then it turns back into a staff. He's like, I'm going to win, Pharaoh. Do what you want. I'm going to win. He speaks through this snake staff. Miriam, Moses' sister, gets mad that God is kind of speaking through him. She gets jealous. She's like, are you the only one that God has spoken through? And God goes, yeah. As a matter of fact, now that you've spoken against him, boom, she gets leprosy. Incurable, fatal disease. And Miriam goes, oh my goodness, I have spoken against God's anointed. Moses, will you pray for me? Moses prays for him. Guess what? This uncurable leprosy goes away like that. God speaks. Even though there's no voice that heard, he speaks through his actions. He guides the Old Testament people with a pillar of fire and a cloud. Hey, so y'all are camping out here at Rephaim. How long are you going to be here? Don't know. We'll move when the cloud moves because that's how God is guiding us. We want to be right under that cloud, right under that flame. And when it moves, we're moving because it's not our comfort that's so important to us. It is his provision. It's being where he wants us to be. He's spoken through Old Testament prophets. There's a hand at a party that shows up and starts writing stuff on a wall. I mean, God uses all kinds of things. He speaks through dreams. He speaks through angels. And anyone who's ever been in ministry for longer than a day knows that if God can speak through a donkey, they can even speak through preachers today. That's great. That's my bar. That's my threshold. Just, just above the King James donkey, you know? And so we'll be good. He uses all kinds of ways. Here's the problem, okay? The Bible has all kinds of various in crazy ways that God speaks, sometimes even audibly, sometimes even a pre-incarnate appearance, a theophany, or Christophany, Christ appears to people before uh, he was incarnated. There's all kinds of things. The problem is that we take things out of context and we personalize them and we say, yeah, you know, God speaks to me like this. When I go into my prayer closet, he shows up. Really? Like flesh and blood? Oh yeah, he shows up. Be real careful about taking what God can do and making it what God will do. I mean, listen, God is God. He can do, he can speak however he wants to speak, but he makes it very clear that just because he has spoken all these ways in the past does not mean that he will just to suit your fancy, just to suit your personal cravings for some CGI special effects, just to, you know, make it look like you have a better walk with God than everybody else. Just because he can does not mean that he will. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Perhaps the most important scripture that we will look at today. All of them are important. This one just kind of is, is the tops for what we're talking about. The point that we're talking about here is number three. In these last days, God has definitively spoken to us in his Son. If you really want to know what God wants for you, you look at Jesus. That's what he says. You want to know? You want to hear what I want? I have spoken to you definitively in my son. Listen to verses 1 through 3. Long ago, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. That's everything that we've been saying so far, right? Long ago, God spoke in all kinds of different ways. Verse 2. But, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. 
The first sentence and the second sentence form what we call an adversative. That but, and the but is not apparent in every translation, but it's there. You can tell just by the logic of the argument. God has spoken in many kind of different ways. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. There, it's an adversative. Verse, ver, the second sentence is in contradistinction from the first sentence, and it's, it's proving a point. Yes, God has spoken all these kinds of ways in the past. Now, God has spoken to us by his son. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things and made the universe through him. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's our king. Who we are to look to for guidance. Jesus reveals God to us. As a matter of fact, this becomes explicitly clear in John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. They're like, Jesus, we love your teaching. Your teaching is great. We just have one little teeny, teeny weeny request. Show us the Father. Just show us God. Make it wonderful. You know, neon light. Show us the Father. And like, we'll be good. We'll, we'll understand what you're talking about. And Jesus says, Philip, Philip, Philip. Have I been with you all this time without you knowing me? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? You want to see God? Where do you look? Jesus. God's kind of an abstract concept. He has no body. He's a spirit. How do you picture God? There's a great way to picture God. Jesus. He explains us. He is God with flesh on so that we can understand him and relate to him because it's hard to relate to an idea. Jesus is speaking to us by uniquely revealing the Father to us so that we can understand him. John chapter 14, uh, I'm sorry, John chapter 10, verses 14 through 15. He doesn't just explain God to us. He's not just, hey, who, he who's seen me has seen the Father. Jesus makes clear what the way of salvation is. In John uh, 10, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know the sheep. They know me as the Father knows me, and I know my Father. I lay down my life for the sheep. What's the way of salvation? It's through Jesus. He has laid his life down through the cross that by confessing our rebellion against God and putting our faith in Christ, we can be saved. He's spoken to us in the Son, and it's not a spoken that is just a history lesson. I love the way that it says it in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. Paul is um, appreciating the Thessalonian believers, and he says this, this is why we constantly thank God, because when you received the message about God that you heard from us, you welcomed it not simply as a human message, but as it truly is, the word of God, the message of God, which works effectively in you. That's the definition of being a Christian. Like, if the word goes in one ear and out the other with, with, without doing anything except cleaning out your ear cavity, that's not what a believer does. A believer responds to the word, and his word works in us. You don't even know that you're doing any work. That's the word that is working through you. God has spoken to us through his son. When we talk about um, God speaking to us through his word, there should always be two things that kind of pop into our mind when we hear that word, word. His, uh, definitely his written word, which is a testimony to his living word. Jesus is the word 
of God. And the only way that we know about Jesus, the word of God, is through the written word of God. Point number four. God speaks today. Today. Right now. By his son. Through his spirit. In the scriptures. A lot of commas in that sentence. God speaks today by his son through his spirit in his scriptures. It's very important to have all those words in that sentence because there are people today, and, and this, is, this is dumb, okay, but just play along. I'll see if this helps more than it hurts. There are people over here that want to put themselves in the Holy Spirit camp, and there are people over here that want to put themselves in the Jesus camp, and there's people back here that want to put themselves in the Word camp like they have no relationship with each other. So what they have just done is they have taken friends and they've made them enemies. Is the Holy Spirit going to do anything that the Son doesn't want? No. Is the Holy Spirit going to tell you anything that the Word doesn't tell you already? No. They work together on a team. And one of the things that's awesome is Jesus says, hey, I'm going to leave and another comforter is going to come and he's going to remind you of everything. He's not saying that the Spirit comes to like do his own thing. The Spirit comes to remind you of what Jesus has already done and then is recorded in the scripture, and the Holy Spirit maybe shines a little spotlight on something that you've forgotten in the word that you're not obeying, and, and kind of nudges you a little bit, says, hey, look at this verse, you're not doing it, but it doesn't have a new message of his own. He only speaks what he hears from the Son and from the Father, and communicates that to us. This is important, because the members of the Trinity aren't doing their own thing, they're on the same team. So why would the Son, why would the son do something that the Father doesn't want? Why would the Spirit do something that the Son has no design for? Now you've made the members of the Trinity, one being, one being three persons, at odds with each other when the truth is they're all working together for the same purpose, to glorify the Father, to make us like Christ. So here's how the Spirit speaks according to the Son through the Scriptures. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. I love this. Pay attention to the verb tense. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, says, present tense, and then it quotes a bunch of Old Testament. It's a reference back today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as at the rebellion, to the passages that Reed read earlier, referring back to Psalm 95, which refers itself back to Exodus 32. So the Holy Spirit said it way back then, but, but in Hebrews, the author is saying the Holy Spirit says, present tense, just as people in Exodus and again in Psalms needed to be warned, the Holy Spirit takes that same scripture to apply that warning to present day saints. Hey, listen, whatever was written for them was written for our instruction. This is a warning. Don't be like those people. The Holy Spirit says, not said. That's huge. He's speaking through the word and we know this because just one page later, in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it will mess you up. It will cut things out of your life that don't need to be there. You'll think of scriptures at the most inopportune time that will be pesky, because they will assault your conscience. Man, I shouldn't have done that. Shouldn't have had that brownie. <laughs> all right patrick got it we'll keep that between you and me uh, it's living and active it does things it, it is alive in a- applying something that was revealed historically in modern day times i love the way the psalmist talks 
about the benefit of God's word, how God's word is not a dry, dusty history lesson, but again, it's alive and active and living. Psalm 119, a bunch of different verses. Uh, They'll be on the screen. How happy are those whose way is blameless. How do you live a blameless life? Who live according to the Lord's instruction. Like there's tremendous blessing in paying attention to the word. Happy are those who keep his decrees and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They follow his ways. Verses 104 and 105. I gain understanding from your precepts. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What is light's function? To guide us. You're like, you don't see 20 years down the road. You see the next step. You're like, if you could see 20 years down the road, would you really want to? If time travel was possible, would you really want to know? I think that, like, you would have to go to the funny farm when you came back. I think it would mess you up, you know? We're not supposed to know that. We have enough time knowing what we know right now. We don't need future knowledge because current knowledge is enough for us. That's enough on our plate Just give me light for my path, not, you know, clairvoyant knowledge of what's so far down the road. His word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Verse 165, abundant peace belongs to those who love your instruction. It is not by mistake that the Bible says if you don't love his word, there's a reason you don't have peace in your life. People who love his word, nothing makes them stumble. Why? They know who's in charge. And it doesn't mean that everything is fine, everything is fun, but it means everything is okay. They're not going to stumble because they know who they have believed in. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the classic New Testament formulation about the benefit and beauty of the Scriptures is that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Man of God there is not parlance for pastor, apostle, or missionary, but for maturity. Every mature person should have a relationship with the word of God so that they are thoroughly complete, equipped for everything that God has called you to. Point number five. And we'll stop with this and we'll continue the conversation next week about understanding Uh, just the beauty of being in a relationship with our guiding God. Number five, apart from his spirit and the word, God has not promised to use any other means, nor should we expect them. Hebrews chapter one, verse one, says God has in various times and in various ways spoken in all kinds of different means, but now in these last days he has spoken to us in his son, period, period. God has said how he plans to speak to us. He's not promised no more burning bushes. So don't make that normative for your life. The way that God wants to communicate to you is through his word, through his son, through his spirit. And that word is going to play a pivotal, unequivocal, and foundational role in how God is going to communicate to us. Now here's here's the deal, okay? Let me just be honest. It's hard to prove a negative. It's hard to prove a negative. God's not going to do this. Besides the fact that Hebrews 1 says this is the way that God speaks today. Disjunctive, adversative. This is how he spoke. Now, this is how, but this is how he speaks now. It's hard to prove a negative. However, there might be something we don't know, and we do know that there are some fantastic things that happen at the very end of the last days. 
that God speaks through other people and does some crazy stuff. Book of Revelation is crazy. There's all kinds of stuff there. That's kind of the exception to the rule. God is now, as far as we can see at this point, this proposition stands. If you want to hear from God, don't, don't fold your legs up and, you know, turn your head a certain way and wait around all day for God to say something because his word is playing a unique and pivotal role in our life. And the truth is we all want God to speak in a way that he said that he's not because we want, we want to look more spiritual than everybody else. We want God to show up in neon lights for us. We want God to do something that he's kind of told us pretty clearly he's not going to do. There's a passage in Scripture that I think drives this home as an illustration really, really well. In Luke chapter 16, there's a man of great resource. We don't know his name. He is just the unknown rich man. But there's a poor man, a beggar, who is laid at his gate who has the name Lazarus. Now, he is not connected with John 11, Lazarus, Jesus' friend that he resurrected. Lazarus evidently is like Larry. He was just a popular name. So Larry's broke, busted, and they figure... Where do you put a guy that's broken, busted? Let's put him at the gate to the rich man's place so that maybe, you know, when he takes his garbage out, he lets him eat the food that's scraped off the plates. They both, in a twist of fate, happen to die on the exact same day. And their destination in eternity is very different. The rich man, who was accustomed to good things in this life, gets sent to a place of eternal torment. It doesn't ever, it's not, not ever called hell, Uh, specifically, but it's a place of judgment. It's a place specifically referred to as torment. And um, and Lazarus, the guy who had a hard time in life, is taken up to a place called Abraham's bosom. It's a place of blessing and refreshment. Well, evidently, the rich man, even in his torment, thinks he can still boss the, the, the poor guy around. And so in Luke 16, verses 27 through 31, here's the conversation that takes place. And I can't help but think that it has some bearing on the topic that we're talking about this morning. Father, I beg you to send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. And I want him to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. What was Abraham's response? They have the Old Testament. New Testament wasn't written at this time. This is Jesus telling the story. And and Abraham says, um, they want to hear from God? Go to the Word. Well, no, 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 no. Father Abraham, you don't understand. If someone, you know, from the dead goes back to them, then they will repent. And he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets... They will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. There's a difference between believing the miracle and believing in the God who speaks through his word. And he establishes a principle here that while we have this request for particular guidance, God, I just want you to show up, we're refusing to listen to what he's already revealed. I think it was Mark Twain that said it's not the stuff in the Bible that he doesn't understand that scares him, it's the stuff that he does understand. There's some truth to that. And I want to encourage you today because the Bible says that we have a guiding God. But the Bible also says, I think it's in Deuteronomy 29, 29, you're not going to like this, but the secret things belong to the Lord. What does that mean? The secret things belong to the Lord. There's some stuff you're not going to find out. 
there are occasions, if you are a parent, where mom and dad have to have a serious conversation, okay? And so if you have kids, like four kids specifically, um, it can be a challenge to have a private conversation. There's, there's no privacy, you know? It's just not. You know, you cup to the wall, you know? And so we'll, we'll be having our private conversation, and, you know, we'll see kind of this going on. I just thought I'd lean up against the wall and mom and dad having a conversation. No, no, no. Shoot, 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 shoot. Go play the Wii. Go outside. Don't play in the street. Um, go do something. Go away. Mom and dad need to talk. Why? Because there are, are, are adult situations. This is a bad analogy, okay, because we're talking finite versus infinite. There are human situations, problems, difficulty, friends, relationships, cancer, sickness, all kinds of things that maybe our kids are not ready to deal with. Okay, so here's the problem. That analogy doesn't break down because the gap between parent and child is not large enough to represent creation versus creator. It's much wider than that. And there are some things that you really want to know. And the problem is that there's not a book called John Hollis that he can open up to that tells him what he should wear today and what route he should take to work and whether he should pack his lunch or buy it today. Like, it's not in there. Does that mean it's not important? No. I mean, there's some really important stuff. But there is not a Bible verse that you can go to in the book of I say so 1312 that says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, here's your plan for the day. Doesn't exist. But what I don't want you to be like, okay, because we're establishing this grand and beautiful argument that we have a guiding God, and his guidance is good, and it brings us peace, and it brings us joy, and it's all kinds of good stuff. Don't be like that kid that goes to the candy store, okay? And I'm thinking about a fictional story, but I have a real story that kind of goes along with it. We went on vacation to a place in Wisconsin. It, it was the largest, Guinness Book of World Records, largest candy counter in the entire world. I could have like, gotten rid of my 403B and cashed it out and just bought candy, and my kids would have loved, at least one of my kids would have really loved me for at least five minutes. Um, you know, buying out all that candy. And, 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 and it, it, there's a temptation for us as believers to become like that kid who, listen, $5 worth of candy, that's a lot of candy, okay? You get your $5 bag of candy that your grandma or grandparent or aunt or uncle or best friend is giving you money to buy, and you walk out of the candy store forlorn at all the candy you do not have without paying attention to what you actually have in your hand. And we want to know so much, all the secret stuff that God has not cared to put in his word that affects you. There's a lot. He says, honestly, I'm more concerned about your character and the kind of person that you are in these situations than the pedantic little bitty details that you're so fascinated in. You don't even know. You don't even know. That's an adult conversation for a kid. That's a God conversation for a, crea uh, a creature. And we walk around like God is holding out all of this candy for us when we have this immense treasure of what he has already revealed to us that you already struggle with obeying what do you want him to do just give you more stuff that you're not going to obey god is good and we don't need to worry about his guidance if we will look at what we have instead of what we will never have we're never going to have his knowledge we're never going to know counterfactuals of freedom we're never going to know the secret things that belong to the lord 2 Peter 1, 3, and I'll close with this, I find to be just extraordinarily liberating because my fear is that sometimes we sit around and we call it waiting on God, but it's actually just dressed up disobedience. We call it waiting on the Lord and we do this navel gazing and we play this waiting game and while it's wise to wait on the Lord, my concern is that we are so busy 
waiting for what he will not reveal and not obeying what he already has revealed. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, His divine power, God's power, has given us, it's that same word we started off with our first point today, his, his divine power has given us, what's the word? Well, only a couple of you know how to read. That's fascinating to me. God has given us what? Everything. What? Everything. Everything required for life. That's a big topic. What all do you fit in that bucket? A lot. He's given us everything we need for life and for godliness. He's given it all to us. Yeah, we want to be like the kid who's not happy with our five bucks worth of candy because there's $5,000 worth of candy on the other side. And so don't focus on what you don't have. Focus on what you do have because God is a guiding God. Thanks, Ken, for guiding Johnny for us. Um, God is in the process of guiding people in all kinds of different circumstances. And so, are you going to be the guy that focuses on what you don't have or on the treasure that he's already given to you? Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you that you have saved us. Not only have you saved us, you have given us your spirit. And while we may not know exactly what the right thing to do is, by your spirit, you start to convict us and we know that there's a pathway for us to walk. And sometimes in our humanity and our finiteness, we get really confused. And yet you have given us your word and your spirit to guide us. We're not left as orphans. We have friends, godly friends, that we can seek their advice, who can point us to scriptures that we don't, we've not encountered in the word or maybe we just don't know yet. You are such a good God. While there are all kinds of things that we are morbidly curious about, Father, I pray that you give us the humility to recognize that they're not important. Who we are is much more important than what we go through. How we go through things is much more important than what we may or may not know. So we thank you that you have given us this treasure trove, this compass of your word. And maybe it doesn't plan out all of the details on the route, but we know for certain what the destination is. We thank you for that. We pray that you help us to treasure it, that you help us to be in the word, not just on Sunday morning, not just in our small group or Bible study, but be in the word for ourselves so that we can become wise to the way that you would have us to live. We thank you for loving us. We pray these things in the strong and matchless and good name of Jesus.